from the Irishman Abroad Podcast Network. This is an Irishman Abroad Inside Basketball. There is no real need for a massive introduction here. This is a podcast about the game, the people, the players, the coaches, the stories, the history, those that played, those that wish they played, those that write about it, and all of us, the people that love it. My name is Jarlath Regan. I am the Irishman abroad, and I have been in love with this thing since I first started throwing up bricks. Thanks for joining me on the journey inside the game. In season one, we will meet the greatest Irish woman ever to play, Susan Moran, one of the greatest writers behind the game, the author of the definitive Jordan biography, Roland Lazenby, a player who's trying to bring back the glory days of the game in Ireland, ex-Kerry footballer and Tralee legend Kieran Donaghy, and there'll be a few other surprises along the way. Let's just say that. I want to hear from you irishmanabroadpodcast at gmail.com suggest a guest tell me your basketball story and if your email is good enough and it gets read out maybe you could get your hands on some exclusive Irishman inside basketball apparel well who better to start this series than the only Irish born player ever to play in the NBA Pat Burke. Pat Burke's life in basketball is one of the untold stories of the game. He wasn't raised to play. He didn't discover the game until he hit a massive growth spurt at 16. He didn't fall in love with it right away either. But when his family moved to Florida, the planets aligned and he met the right coach who set him on the path to playing for clubs like Panathinaikos, Real Madrid and of course the Orlando Magic and Phoenix Suns. Pat Burke has seen every angle of the game from playing college ball at Auburn, tasting the bitter disappointment of going undrafted, going the unconventional route to the pros, winning at the highest levels of Eurobasket, defending MJ and establishing his own hoops academy after his playing days ended. This is an Irish Basketball Hall of Famer who can give an insight into life inside basketball like nobody else. Pat Burke, it's a total pleasure to have the chance to sit down and talk to you about your life in basketball. And I thought that when I went through it, one of the big forks in the road for you, and you tell me if this is the defining moment or one of the defining moments in your career is draft night, NBA draft night, when your name doesn't get called and you're walking down the street outside of a house that has been cleared in seconds of people who were there to <laughs> clap you on the back, uh, yeah. who are now driving home saying to themselves, who the fuck is Gerald Honeycutt? <laughs> <laughs> you're st strolling down the street and if this is a movie at this point you are you know rags to riches type guy in this situation and the call comes from your house the New York Knicks are on the phone did you think in that moment this is someone playing a prank and once you do answer the phone had you any idea that this would become the biggest decision you'd ever face as a professional. Well, first of all, thank you for having me back. It's it's always fun to 
to chat and uh, to talk about these these things. Um, but it's, it's funny, as soon as you started to define that room, I, I started to sweat. <laughs> <laughs> I was instantly brought back into just floating cups and individuals of just exiting the room very fast. <laughs> yeah, so when, it, the funny thing is, is looking back now, you know, you think to yourself, you know, everything is going to be okay, but obviously you wouldn't know that because you're in that moment. Mm. And so when I left, when I left the room, I, I'd say that the, the the pressure or the emotional challenge that I was going through was, this is not the storybook approach to success that everyone talks about. You know, like it's everyone's dream to be drafted. It's everyone's dream. That's the way you go through. That's that's the the, mm -hmm. the road most common taken, and that's not the road I was on. So. There was, you know, like with anything, I think it was fear that it was all coming to an end. Like, I've just wasted my time. I don't know what's next. I'm never going to get an opportunity again. And so as I headed out my the front door of the house, I started walking down the road. You know, my brother had called me and told me that there was somebody on the, on the phone. You know, I, it, I, I think in some strange sense, it was like, that brand of the NBA and, and the New York coming in a New York Knicks logo was like, okay, there's, there's something there and it still wants you to, to talk mm. to you. Yeah. And so going back in, it was like, Oh, okay. So I, I, I still have some sort of, of opportunity here. Yeah. It was like, there's a little bit of hope and there's, and there's someone who's recognizing that I, you know, that there's been a mistake. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> they're going yeah, yeah. to stop the draft and replay the whole thing. We've made a mistake. You know what? We forgot. There's a guy down in Florida and uh, we want to thank all the viewers and all the fans of the NBA. <laughs> so, but when I went back in, yeah, it was, um, you know, there's a, there's a new reality there for you because everybody's hopeful of, you know, if they're going on a job interview or they want to get into a school or, the, you know, they're looking to purchase a new home or to get a car. It's like you're thinking, oh, this is what I want. This is what I want. And when it doesn't work out the way you want, you're a little rattled. Mm. And uh, going back in to, to answer that phone was uh, was was huge in my life at that so, moment. So it's not Jeff Van Gundy on the end of the phone, right? No, no, no. no. Um, but but he, he, him and his team it, are the ones that, that go, no, no, th there's something here with this guy. And they bring you in for, a, is it, they bring you in for summer league? Is that how it worked? Yeah, yeah. So so what happens is, is after the the draft occurs, anybody who got drafted would end up flying or driving, whatever, some sort of, some sort of way, transporting themselves to the team's facilities because there's going to be a press conference, you know, so mm -hmm. all these guys are going moving around and, and they're showing up. Now they're then going through the parade of uh, staff that's helping them with accommodations, you know, how to look at apartments for the season. Everyone's fulfilling their dreams where mine was an invite like saying, Hey, we're going to bring you in and we've got a summer league that's going on that we're going to be going out to LA. We'd like to bring you in for that team. So when I show up, for that invite, I'm staying at a hotel in New York, and then I go through the process of. It wasn't even like, "Hey, you're going to come come play with us." Is we want you to come to see if you can make this team. Okay, so you have to try out yeah. for the summer league team, right? Yeah, yeah, and and there well, what were, kind of guys are showing up there? Are there like these are other kind of college players and. Is there any kind of street ball guys that are? I'm assuming kind oh, of yeah. legends oh, yeah. that are trying to to kind of go an alternative route. Oh, there's all shapes and sizes. That's a, that's a great way. Like you, you've got it down. So when I show up, there's guys that are, 
you know, very rough looking and uh, they've got a, they got their own brand and their own confidence. And then you've got guys that are, you know, coming in and they're a little unsure and they're, you know, there's guys that are just, they're so far out there that you're like, oh, wow, is, is this really what is desirable? So I thought so far, far out going. there in the sense that like there's actually like guys that are huge that are just huge dudes that don't look like basketball players. Yeah, well, it doesn't even have to be their looks. It could be just their attitudes. So if you take if you take okay. everything that makes up a person, it could be somebody just saying the most outlandish things or somebody who just, you know, they're just they won't talk at all. Or, you know, there's guys that are, you know, there's guys that are seven three and there's guys that are five foot four and they're and they're just showing up and so when you get in there it's a mixed bag of everything. So once it starts kinda going through the funnel and the filter of, okay, here's the beginning of practice, we're gonna start doing this, you start to see the the edges the bookends on the left and the right start to shrink in you know mm. and there's people on the outside the bookends like what just happened it's like you just got caught and you don't even know it <laughs> you know it's like oh. you just you just haven't filtered through because it's just like what we went through in the in in the national idea of the college basketball only so many people got invited to this camp and now you're one step closer and in one five minute drill they saw what they needed to see to put you on the outside. And that's, and we, wow. you started seeing people like, you know, I think we started off with, I want to say close to 25 guys on the very first day. And the next day it was down to 20. I mean, just to put it in context for the, the listener, because I know we're going to have a, a lot of people who aren't, you know, basketball aficionados. I don't even consider myself as one. But the idea of the undrafted player. I mean, you know, there's, there's kind of Cinderella stories like Fred Van Vliet would be the most recent undrafted player who's gone on to do great things. But it really is the round the outside method. Ben Wallace is another one I can think of, you know, went on to win a title. This, as you say, is not the storybook method. If this was, and I do think this would make a great movie because... It's kind of the Bull Durham ragtag bunch of guys, some with incredible talent, but ill discipline, who could potentially go to the bigs. That's it. But, but you know, it's funny when you say that. I think that storyline is more relatable to the NBA fan. Mm. You know, if, if you put a if you put a a video together or an interview and it talks about LeBron James from high school to where he is now that stretch of athleticism and the ability to open all those doors that's that's nowhere near anybody's life yeah but it's superhuman it, it is it's like this is unbelievable like I mean you might as well have uh, the planet Krypton and, and the whole meteorite coming down and then lifting up the truck to save yeah, the whoever parents, it was yeah. in the book it's like, what is this? And and after a while, that that movie is just like, oh, it's okay. But mm. if if you have the storyline of all the shit that can go wrong, mm. and all that you know, the adversity coming in, but you don't even know it's adversity. You're just like wired. Like I wasn't sitting there and boo hoo and like, and you won't believe it. I wasn't drafted. I'm mm. just sitting there going, that sucked. Yeah. And you just keep going, and you don't even realize until someone sits there, sits there and says, Jesus, tell me that story again. Yeah, oh, yeah I, I went into uh, I went into this uh, this small gym, 
and Jeff Van Gundy was there, and he was, you know, four foot nothing, and he was screaming at everybody and telling everyone they were fucking worthless. And the next time they get a chance like this, that uh, no one's going to show up. So when you walk into that high school gym for your next tryout, lock the fucking doors on the way in because no one's going to care because they're not going to be there with you. Wow. And, and I'm telling you, this is what he would say. And you'd sit there and you'd go, Jesus, you don't sound anything like my college coach. And that's not what I expected from any NBA coach when I was looking yeah. on the TV because I always thought they were very nice people with, you know, very respectful relationships but mm. they do have very i mean there's almost a level of well if you're making five million dollars and above well then the coach will come in and say good morning and how you doing but if you're if you're under that that little standard you you're lucky if he even looks at you so you know? you, and you, yeah i completely get the sense of that and i think we from any kind of sports movie that we watch i think the whole world has come to know what leverage looks like in professional american sports and you guys have absolutely zero leverage in this situation you are completely indebted to the new york knicks for giving you this opportunity but you you get it and wind up in that summer league opposite correct me if i'm wrong tim duncan and kobe bryant yeah yeah so talk to me about what summer league looks like and is it another level up of the same kind of playing for your life yeah well so the the stretch of time in new york leads to let's say the 12 guys who are going to get on the flight and so it gets down to the 12 guys now we've we've all walked the walk we're talking the talk we're all sitting there doing everything that they want us to do but you know obviously now the big test is when you get out to la so we land in la and I think we're two days there before it even starts up. And then here comes everybody thinking they've made it to the next step. But you haven't. You haven't signed the contract. You're, you're not, you know, you're not looking at a five-year deal. You're sitting there. You've just made it to L.A. You're just in another location on the map. And as soon as we get there, I'll never forget, two days into it, and I don't know. I, don't, I honestly, I tell you this, I'm not sitting here with a halo in my head or mm -hmm. some sort of like understanding of what was what was being required or requested but i had been doing all the little things i was getting my weight room workouts in i was getting on the cardio machine because i knew i knew already that i didn't get drafted so mm -hmm. it's like this is it so jeff van gundy is sitting there and, and he says to us at the end of one of the the huddles he's like hey how many of you guys since we've been here have uh, have gotten a workout and i put my hand up and he said, how many guys have gotten some cardio and i put my hand up i'm the only one put my hand up and there's guys that are rookies from the, the year before that were on the knicks and then there are guys that are just got drafted and then there's the other guys like all the rest of us who were just working our way in there and so i was like jesus i'm gonna run here i better keep this up <laughs> yeah you know yeah. And some of the other guys, since we landed in L.A., they were out, you know, drinking beers and, and chasing, you know, the party scene or whatever. So I'm like, let me let me pause you there. I mean, that always strikes me as odd. I remember that when people talked about these high school kids that were at the time allowed, you know, go into the NBA straight from high school. And the question was being raised, what are they going to do when all their teammates are out in the nightclubs? And I was, you know, shocked. I was only a teenager at the time, but I was thinking why are they in nightclubs? Surely that's the opposite of what they'd need to do with an 82-game season in front of them. But I'd imagine in the same sense, in the same breath, when you're that physically fit, these guys are able to put away an awful lot of alcohol and party until very late 
while still being able to get up the next morning. Have I got that all right? Oh, that's that's exactly it. I mean, the one thing I, I'd like to assist in, if I can, is take away any type of mental strength or difference in emotional balance. Like, just imagine anybody in your neighborhood, someone you grew up with. Imagine they grew up when they were seven three and they could head to forty inch verticals. It's just a physical prowess or an athleticism that leads them into an opportunity to make money like this. But it's, they're still the same person emotionally. So it's like, you know, how many how many lawyers do we know, or, or airline pilots, or doctors, or any professional that still goes out and they might have a drink or two? Like they're they're not looking at it like, hey, I'm wearing a shield of I'm an athlete. I'm an athlete. It's just mm. I'm a I'm just a guy. And yeah. and, and and the reality is is. The, the humanity of it is, is they're just going to do what they've been doing. So it's like you can't stop them. And then, you know, the funny thing is about the high school kids is a great point you just made. The high school kids, they're just high school kids. I mean, they're going to they're going to do what needs to be done. I mean, if, if they say the biggest fear for kids, for youth, is not fitting in. Well, shit, if all the NBA guys they go into are doing this stuff, what are they going to do? Sit at, you know, sit in the hotel room and read books? Yeah, well, we know that Kobe did. We know that Kobe literally got the playbook and every video they would give him and either played Sega and or did that. But clearly, you know, like you say, he's an anomaly. He's an outlier. He didn't give a damn about fitting in. But I wonder, uh, like you, you had the same type of worries. Like you were still a kid, essentially, four years of college. You're still keen to fit in. Why weren't you tempted to to do this? Was it literally the fear? This is my shot. I don't want to blow this. Did you have that Catholic guilt that so many Irish fellows walk around with for so long? I I'd say a little bit of it, like you know, because you know you're you're still around your boss, you know, so you 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 can't hide. You know the the yawning and the the inability to keep up with everyone else. So you're always on stage. You know whether you're playing or you're practicing or you're walking around in the lobby of the hotel. So there was that kind of like standard attention was always there. Mm-hmm. You know you're almost on a stage and everybody sees it. And and the basketball world is very very small and it communicates very well. So it doesn't matter who you're bumping into or you think someone can't see you. They can see everything. Mm-hmm. You know, so like when I went out to L.A. that time, it was probably and and knowing this now, you know, knowing now, like what was going on, that's probably why Jeff Van Gundy said that. I mean, he could have been out to dinner. He could have landed, went out to dinner, and and then he probably could have gotten some feedback from somebody on the one of the other teams that seen some of the Nick guys uh, out or doing something. So he says, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to nip this one in the butt. Yeah, so like this all leads to you making the decision not to be Patrick Ewing's number two, that your agent at the time has the foresight to know that your life is going to be on the bench should we go with this team. And this person, you know, this, this is the visionary that essentially designed your life because you know, your choice to go to Europe is one of the lesser talked about things in terms of your career. Everybody wants to talk to you about the NBA. I'm sure you're used to it now. People want to know about defending Jordan. And, 
you know, I, I hope that we do get a chance to talk about that. And no doubt we will. But that European experience and that decision not to be Patrick Ewing's number two, it, it must have played on your mind as you were going on a plane to a land you'd never seen, to a league nobody watched, to play for a coach you were told <laughs> was great. <laughs> what am I doing? Jesus, it was a good thing you weren't my roommate on that trip when I made that decision. <laughs> Would have come back to the door and said, hey, I got something to tell you. You'd be just shaking me. Would you wake up, boy? It had to yeah, be in mind. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it, so there weren't people around saying that, but, but it had to be in your head. I had a teammate, Rob Wardan, and Rob was uh, probably two or three years older than me. I think he went... My apologies. I think he went to St. John's. He went to a he's a big guy. Anyway, he's he was a journeyman. He had been around the NBA, going to different teams. And that's another part of the that uh, process was it wasn't just the up and comers who had, hadn't had a taste for any of this. It were some of the guys that were invited to these these uh, summer leagues were guys who may have been drafted and it didn't work out the year before and teams have released them or guys who weren't drafted years, one or two years before. Mm. Maybe they played overseas. Maybe they were bouncing around in the CBA and they would be given a second chance because maybe they, they would fulfill on potential or you know they'd grown a bit to change their game. So I went back to the room after Jeff Van Gundy had uh created this opportunity to me and telling me, you know, and it was the way he said it to me, too. It was like, you know, the, the only thing I, I the only thing I experienced from Coach Van Gundy was the the seriousness of the tryout, the seriousness of who, you know, the, making a team was. And then it was it was put so bluntly because he didn't have it's almost like he had the luxury of not caring if anybody cared about him it was like look I, even my job could be fired he's like so something like, you know you either do this or you don't but the nba doesn't care so when he came over and he kind of brought me to the side and was telling me you know in in a very rash and calm voice i was kind of like well who the hell is this talking to me and he was just hey you know your your agent has told me that you do have some opportunities in europe and i was like wow this is this is crazy you know i'm like i'm sitting here and jeff van gunny's having a conversation with me and he says, to, you know, if you um, want you to know that we, we're, we're going to offer you something that uh, you know has never been done in the history of the New York Knicks. And I'm sitting there going, well, Jesus, if he's even saying that, he's already gone over this conversation in his mind about what he's going to say to me. That's how the level of, of, of my conversation with him was going to be. So I'm thinking, Jesus, he's already put some thought into this. So he says, you know, we're going to do something that uh, we've never done in the history of the New York Knicks. We're going to offer an undrafted rookie a guaranteed contract. And I was like, whoa, you know, I didn't even get it at the time. I'm still just this kid that, you know, just dropped a hockey stick, you know, like so many years before. And, you know, I'm, I'm like, I'm still thinking, you know, a couple of years ago, I was doing landscaping work and wheeling a wheelbarrow with my dad. Like, and now all of a sudden I got Jeff Van Gunner offering me this contract. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> So anyways, he see, he makes that opportunity. And then I go back, like I shared, and I said that to Rob. And was, Rob, you know, and just like what you said earlier, like Rob had no experience with anything in any other country with basketball or professional leagues. So he was just – and he was a wise kid. You know, he's sitting there, and he's probably 24, 25. He said, you know, Pat, I, I don't know anything about Europe. He said, but, you know, I know if it's for me, 
I'm taking that New York Knicks contract. And he was the same position as me. Rob was seven foot. Seven, so I'm sure in some way in his mind, he was sitting there and he wanted to shake me by the, you know, the collar and just be like, well, are you fucking nuts? Sign that deal. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, like, I wanted to ask just before we go on the journey, right? Because the, you know, you see the, the highest high that, that European basketball has available. You establish a, you know, a life abroad, a family with teammates, an understanding and a bond that you speak so fondly of that, you know, it's clear that, you know, emotionally it meant a lot to you. But before we get there, when you were there in Europe, you're like every day people are going, why don't you play in the NBA? This is a common conversation with you as you should play in the NBA. I guess the question that I wanted to ask was, when we mentioned that this is other level, this is another planet that LeBron and these players of that athleticism and skill and talent exist in, you know, you've witnessed it up close and personal. Did it come as a shock to you when you were seeing, you know, the highest level of professional basketball in America, exactly how how good they were, how athletic they were, and how, I guess, how few mistakes they tend to make? That's a, it's an interesting question. I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to answer it like with with that I don't know, I, I, same viewpoint is. You know, when I, when I was in Europe the first year, when I was in the Spanish team, I was still developing. That's, I think that's one of the, the foresights my agent had in, in understanding, said your best days are ahead of you. So the, I, the athleticism was there. So people were seeing, Jesus, this guy can jump and this guy can do all this. But, you know, it, it was still a little bit mechanical. It was still a little bit cavemanish. And then it was, you know, when I got into Greece, and probably my second year with Panathinaikos, that's when it was starting to, people were starting to say these things to me. So when I did finally come back and started playing with the Magic, you know, I, that was, what was I, around 27, 28, I, I was keeping up with a lot of the athletic parts of this. So it's like, you know, you're, you're, you're testing the waters of what do they have? What do I have? How does it fit in? But the one thing that I, I could say that I, I didn't, and I still don't to this day, is I don't have the knowledge or experience of answering that question that you just asked about seeing them, that upper level of LeBron and them. Because, see, I, I didn't walk that same walk. I, I didn't play 25, 30 minutes a game. Mm. I, I, I was, you know, to, to the best, and, and this is kind of a, maybe it's a fair or unfair thing to say, but, you know, when you don't play that much, you don't really get to, you know, bump into them the whole game and to see what they're actually doing night in, night out. Even mm. when I was in Phoenix, you know, I was, I was, you know, a reserve at best. It's just you know, you're getting in for some of the end minutes, so you're not really getting to see or test the the waters of how how far the likes of Steve Nash. Now I played obviously in practice in Amari and Sean Marion. You know, even when I was at the Magic, I was playing in practice with T Mac and Grant Hill to the, in the beginning of the year. But I don't really know 
what it was like. But I, I do know this is they are the stars and the whole NBA knows it. So they're granted a little bit of space to exercise. How would I say? Uh, let's some of the things that they're not doing very well. You know, it could be sportsmanship. It could be their inability to play defense and, and fouling. So like, if this makes sense, it's almost like I, I don't know really what they truly could do, but I do know what they were getting away with. You know, when you mm-hmm. see people getting called for, for, you know, playing a little too close to LeBron and irritating him, but then when he goes back to the other end and he's doing these things and it's just like you start to see the true professional basketball as far as the NBA in a different light. Yeah. You know, you, you know, you know, there's a little more politics to it because Again, I think I touch on this all the time with everybody. Is it's built for entertainment? Yeah, you know. I mean, yeah. just imagine if, if if like we were just joking around a little while ago about the whole Superman story. You know, it's like nobody wants to see the green screen behind <laughs> Superman <laughs> in a studio with the actor, like because it just doesn't look good. So they don't want to talk about it, but they've got to put on the best product. So they got to make these guys look like they're flying all the time, and they're and you know, I mean. If here's one of my points, if, if you if you watch the early years of um, Dwight Howard, Dwight Howard was one of the most athletic basketball players at his size in in generations. Just amazing, unbelievable. Yeah. But if you watch him play a full game, he's at a light jog and he's bitching and moaning to refs from one end to the other, and you're sitting there. And you're going and we're coming in and we're paying money good money to watch this guy play for what for one dunk every you know every 25 minutes it's a so there's there's a little bit of kind of like what's really going on out there that even though i didn't get to experience it was full i I was in a position where i would be the guy they would call the foul on i'd be the guy they would you know (laughs) like okay well no one's no one's here paying for pat burke you know so (laughs) let's so you, you you see a little bit of difference inside of that those type of things well, i don't know if that answers yeah no i think it not. really does because i think that uh, every irish lad knows a friend who <laughs> went off for trials for liverpool or manchester united yeah. Yeah. and they were the best guy in the neighborhood <laughs> and then yeah. they, they got sent home within two days and there was no professional football for them. So my question was kind of motivated out of that, that, you know, there's there's this other level in which this game is played that, you, you know, you, I guess, were closer to understanding because you're playing in a Division One school and you're, I guess, you're around that level of excellence for a long time. It's a really interesting answer in terms of the leeway that they're given because if anyone wants to take a moment right now and just pause this and go onto YouTube and look up (laughs) NBA travels (laughs) oh yeah the traveling that takes place particularly with LeBron there's there's footage of him switching his pivot foot three and four times taking four steps for a layup and more (laughs) like it actually it does make sense what you're saying and it does make sense that it's done for there to be highlights and for there to be a replay to play going into commercials that people will come back to see what happens next. One thing that I guess it's immortalized 
by the the press conference that he gave, uh, the Alan Iverson, we're talking about practice press conference. I never understood it, right? I never really, I was like, yeah, practice, the most important thing <laughs> that we do. Uh, but his argument was that practice is irrelevant. It made me wonder the difference between practice as you saw it in America versus Europe. Because oh the, my impre gosh. the impression I get is that there isn't much of it happening at all in the NBA. There's a difference there in so many things, but the, one of the things the thing that sticks out as far as like Allen Iverson's emphasis on the, the value of what a practice was by undervaluing it by saying we're you know we're talking about something that's that's almost insignificant mm. is when you're when you're playing an 82 game season and these games are going back to back to back to back to back imagine trying to read 10 books a week and you're rotating those books and you've got to sit there and talk about what's going on in each one of them as far as the plot and, and the subject matter and the depth of character like you're you're scouting so many different teams but the funny thing is is they're all pretty much the same systems they're picking roles they're setting the other they're there's all these different things that they're doing, but you can't go over them so many times. And then you've got to put so much effort inside of a game. How would you even have time to recover? I mean, we're talking, Gerald, we're talking about the biggest, fastest human beings that ever walked the earth out there. And when you smash into one of them, you don't get one vertebrae popping. Your whole, all the way down from your tailbone to your ears are cracking. And when you do, you're not coming out of that like, oh, one little bag of ice is going to help me. I mean, the best trainers on earth are all around the NBA league helping these guys to recover faster so that they can make it back out the next night. So the practice side of things is a little bit funny because, I mean, most of the time you see guys that are on the sidelines with ice and things on their knees and around their neck and this and the other. They're not really in, in an opportunity to do anything. And if they do, the coaches have everyone walking through something. And it's like, okay, we already know this. We already know that. If you're watching video, this is the silliest thing that you see is you're watching video of a game and you're scouting one of the other teams and they're saying, oh, he, well, this person here, he goes left 90% of the time and he scores 35% of the time when he goes to his left. And you're going, yeah, but didn't the team that they're playing, didn't they scout him too? Mm -hmm. So even if they were trying to stop him from going to his left, he's still going to go to his left. But the reality is, is like we're scouting some, a team that's been scouting by the other teams they're watching, and they're still not able to do it. And this person right here is a uh, first-team All-NBA defender who's on top of this person. <laughs> so it's ridiculous. So then if you go over to the European side of things, you have the luxury of time where every game is either on a Wednesday, let's say, or a Saturday. And... Now you have the ability to put a little more time and emphasis into the scouting. So you have a couple more video sessions on a team that's coming up with a little bit more time. Even though it's the exact same conversation is the team that's watching them on, the team that you're watching is being played by a team that scouted them too, and they're still doing the exact same things. I mean, they're getting paid to do this. Mm. So it's, to me, it's always interesting to, to, to have that because – Really, at that point, there's only so many little sneaky surprise things that teams can do. And if they're doing them only, you know, 10% of the game, that could be the difference. But that's what you need to focus in on, not 
you know, the, the major points because all of basketball is pretty much the same movements anyways. So is that the reason the sheer mass, the sheer quantity of games, the reason why NBA teams and NBA play will tend towards paint by numbers and it rolls through these frequencies and periods of time where this one style of play is working. That's what everybody's to head towards now. And yet the European game has always tended towards team fundamentals, everybody being able to play all positions and a more philosophical view of the game. Am I wrong on this? But it does feel like there's... Well, let me, let me, I, I love this question. And I, and I would say this like this is I want to answer it by, by sharing. Humans will take the path of least resistance. Mm. Humans, they just love the path. So if there's an easier way to do something, they're going to do that. Yeah. It's, it's my belief that if, if you and I were to go out to a playground... When the, when the coronavirus is not going on. If you and I were going to a playground and play basketball, you're going to find individuals that play an individual style of basketball because it's easier. Like, would it be easier for you and I to go out there and start talking to strangers and about coming up and setting screens and pick and rolls and diving or lobs? And, no, yeah. it would be very difficult. So in, in the NBA, when you have prima donnas coming in, would it be easier to go out there and have them show their skill and talent and create chaos on a team? Or would it be easier for the coach to try and tell that prima donna what to do, how to do it, and this, that, and the other? And before you answer that question, you see this in Europe is the coaches, in my experience, in the 12, the 12 years of playing, the three years in the NBA, the nine years overseas, the European coaches were mostly all autocratic. They would tell us what to do, and if we didn't do it, we would just get punished. So they would fight us very early on to say, you know what the path of least resistance is? You either do it my way, or you're going to be on the the line running sprints, or you're not going to get the day off tomorrow if we don't win this game because you're not boxing out. So there was a little bit of a fear factor, and you don't see this in the NBA because – also, they just can't. There's just too many factors that would say if a coach did that, you know, with all the money that's being spent, that the there'd be a player the strike. Who are the top, they'd get, yeah, they'd get them out of there. Yeah. The so the owner would sit there and go, the okay, so I'm, I'm paying, I'm, yeah, I'm paying T Mac a hundred million dollars, and he's upset, and I got you know Doc Rivers, and he's making whatever eight million a year. Yeah, hey Doc, you're fired. Mm. And that's and that's sad. But in Europe, I mean, I would see guys, you know, like, you know, I had a, I had a coach who was smacking guys. No, I'm whoa, sitting there whoa, like, hang oh, on. there's not a he, he's, smacking. He's backhanding or a Pam or is smacking, it actual? Smacking them like, not smacking them in the face now. No, no, smacking them like smacking them in the legs and things like that during huddles and, and things like that. And you're sitting there like, Jesus, if you put a welt on me. <laughs> Oh my god! I mean, I have I have witnessed that I think once with a coach called Laszlo Namath, who is, you know, considered a kind of European legend, or at least he was. And the you know, I didn't know that that was a thing. That this is so. You're saying that there's a kind of a Brian Clough 
type European basketball coach that oh yeah that ran the show like I am the dictator here. And oh Jesus! Obradovich, all of them. Like the, I would never see Obradovich when we were at Panathinaikos coming up to me and asking me what I thought about this, that, and the other. He'd be like, you know, telling me you're going to do this and you're going to do that. And you're going to, I mean, on and off the court. I'm surprised you didn't tell me, you know, how many peas I could eat with my hamburgers. <laughs> so what was the adjustment like to then go back from that? Because I'd assume that, you know, having, you know, won the Eurobasket, having, you know, built this reputation in Europe as a man who makes teams winners, Pat. I mean, that had to be your reputation because every team you went to did well with you on it to then go back across home and it, it, like first of all there must have been incredible excitement just to be back and doing it and back in you know your home state and you know putting on nba gear i know i'm a bit of a gear and a sneakerhead but just the idea of, of <laughs> no, put, I, agree. I agree yeah putting on the practice gear and everything and sitting in that practice facility and you know as great as you know the greek basketball is the pristine kind of squeaky clean nature of the Orlando facility must have like it must have been like traveling to the moon versus what you were used to. And the style of play is so different. Again, talk to me a little bit about that transition back. Well, you know, before I got before I get to that transition, it's funny is when I entered the game of basketball. I was the, I was the guy who didn't know all the terminology and the style and all that type of things, you know. So that was coming at a late age, you know, sixteen years old, and then you're almost in a fake it till you make it stage for a while, you know. Mm. Hey, mom, dad, I need to get the shoes. I need to get the gear because everybody here thinks this is cool. And I, you know, remember the biggest fear of youth is not fitting in. Yes. So I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put as soon as I get on the court, you know, I'm so tall and I can't dunk. It just doesn't fit, and everybody's got an opinion. But hey, I probably need more gear. I need more shoes, really, to put this on. Pretending like I'm, they're they're confused. So. When I get to college, I got to go through that whole thing again because my freshman year, I'm nowhere near the athletic ability of a Division One athlete. So all my all my teammates right away are like, "Jesus, this guy's the worst thing that's ever come into this university." So you're still you're, you're doing it again. You're working. You're working until finally it starts to catch up, and you're catching up with this. Now, the thing that I just think it's it's interesting is when I go from college. And even daring to dream of playing in the NBA, it's like, that's the place I want to go. That's the place. And you're watching this on, TN on NBC and TNT or whatever television stations playing those games. And that's all you want because that's what everybody around you says is success. So that's what you want. I make the decision then from the Knicks to go play in Europe. And when I get over there, this is where the first transition occurs. I'm sitting there going, what the hell are you all doing over here? <laughs> like, this is supposed to be alley-oop dunks and last-second shots, and, and you're all trying to slow down the game, and you're talking about all this strategy and tactical stuff. It's, it's slowing my cool down, man. <laughs> and it started to piss me off. And a couple of the practices that, you know, 21 years old, I would just take the ball and I'd kick it in the stands, and I'd be sitting there like going, you're all fucking crazy. Really? And Oh, yeah. And all these guys on my team were like, Jesus, this guy is, he's really upset. 
So the first the first transition was when I got over to Europe and I couldn't understand what the hell they were doing. And I was I was very combative with my coach Sergio Scarliolo, you know the the coach who mm. uh, the national team coach for Spain and all that. He and I had this kind of a love hate relationship, and so it just kept going back and forth. And he'd be like, "Jesus, what's wrong?" And I was a little bit of the whipping boy in the beginning. You know, he'd always be picking on me about something, and I was like, "I don't get it." But at the end of that year, it was the best year because all of that struggle and all of that things he was doing was trying to pull the team together so that you harness everyone's energy on how do we achieve together. And I remember I was like, oh, when it was all done, I think I've, I've shared this a number of times with people, even though we did not win the championship, we went to the finals and we lost. I was still looking at that year like this is one of the best years I've ever experienced. The next year, I'm lucky enough that I'm with Panathinaikos. We ended up winning a couple of championships. And now I'm really starting to understand what a team is and what sacrifice means. And just, you know, it's almost a, a bit of faith. You got to say, even though this doesn't feel good, yeah. it's going to turn out at the end. And that's when we started to win. So I was really starting to realize that, you know what? This may not be what everybody over there in this pop culture world thinks is team sports but this is success this is winning like we are winning at a different rate let me pause you there okay, before sorry. we go back over because you know i think sometimes people roll their eyes at me when i like i really am fascinated by the kind of metaphysical philosophical side of these human activities like i had a surfer on last week on the show who talked about how we can learn life through these activities and that they bring you into the present and that we learn trust and identity, uh, sacrifice and failure all through these activities. The things that you're describing there, the moving through the discomfort, knowing that something better was on the other side. Like, do you have these kind of thoughts about the kind of higher significance of what this game is and why there is this strange attraction to it and why I, I feel this like absolute urge to have my son play it and learn to enjoy it more than win at it? I don't know if it's the, the game as much as it is the experience of being a part of a team. Okay. And, and this is, this is, and, and what I would say is I, I agree with you that there is so much opportunity to introduce adversity, to introduce lessons and, and to, to actually go through them, to walk them and actually self reflect of how they're making change of, you know, something that's, um, how would I say, effectively making change so it's it's more successful or is it ineffective so the sport itself to me is not so much like that's the amazing it's it's really the leadership involved and that space of self-reflection because most of the people just play like mm. and, I, and i don't mean to jump off into a tangent but some of the smartest practices that i've ever seen are done when there's a very small window to actually go into the action. So you, you go through three-minute drills of basketball. 
and you're working on three different emphasis. So you stop, you stop the game after three minutes and you start talking to your players about what's, what's happening, what's occurred. And they have the ability then, because there's, there's such an abyss of things you can do right and more effect. And I shouldn't say right mm. things that you can do effectively and ineffectively in basketball, whether it's defending or offensively scoring, working together in different ways. But when there's a moment to stop and talk about it, it's like life. Like how many people can stop on a Friday and look back from Monday through Friday and see what they've done in their relationships, uh, what they've done in their diet and their, in their mm. self growth. They don't do it because most of the time in our culture, we're moving so fast that we don't have those planned moments to stop and look back. Mm. So in the game of basketball, to me, some of the greatest moments they were only, I would say, they're responsible for their being so great or measuring how great they are by the leader who actually stopped to talk to us about what was occurring. And, and that to me is like, you know, Bradovich. You know, even though Bradovich had methodology that would just push people through space, he could stop and talk about, okay, so what did, what did we do here? How, are we, how well are we doing this? What are these things? And you'd look back and go, holy shit, I'm a different player. Yeah. And, and, and even though it doesn't feel good to be pushed over that cliff or to be pushed over that wall and not know what on the other side of it, you're still doing it. But then he's there on the other end of it to go, Hey, I know I was rough on you on that. I know that. But what occurred? And you sit there and you go, there's forgiveness in that space. You're like, Holy yeah, shit. Yeah. You know, you've done, you've done something for me that I never would have been able to do. It, and I was fighting you on, it. even with Scarliolo, I was sitting there and I wanted, to, to fight the guy all the time, uh, but like at the very end, incredible at coach. the very end of it, yeah, at the very, very end of the the season, who was one of the top Osman players in Spain that year? I was, yeah. and I'm looking back at it like, did I do it myself? No, I I did it with his assistance of requesting things for me to do, and if I wasn't doing them, he was forcing me to do them. And after a while, you start to realize he's not trying to hurt me. This gentleman is trying to help me to get over it. It's just the path of least resistance that I want to take is not going to help the team or myself. And he has to take a, a, also the path of least resistance as a human being. He's just going to tell me to do them because it would take too long to sit down every mm. week and talk to me about these. Yeah. And that is, you know, that's another subject that we could get into just in terms of how nowadays barking an order at a kid is so uh, taboo nearly that uh, everyone wants to be pulled aside and explained why you're valuable and beautiful and a part of this team. Uh, but there is a need to shout occasionally to get these messages across. But I am keen to get back to the transition back to the US. I, I stopped you just before you headed into it. So to look at it like as that first moment in Europe at, at that time, I wasn't fully aware that I had gone through a change. You know, I, I just did whatever their culture was wanting me to do. It's almost like, again, the kid who doesn't want to not fit in. I was doing what everybody else was doing. And so if they, if they wanted to do team dinners, they wanted us to wear all the same suit. They wanted to practice twice a day. I was just going to do it. Because my first year, I was fighting them on it all the time. And then I didn't realize that, like I just shared, that with these coaches – they were put me in a position to be more successful. Mm -hmm. And it was probably what I was missing when uh, I was in college. So 
I go back then. I, I take the the contract with the magic. And like you said, you know, you're, I'm sitting there in the locker room before one of the first training sessions or scrimmages or something. And I'm just in awe. You know, I mean, come on. Every kid has been through the store or the shop and you've seen the jerseys and this and the other. Well, I'm actually putting the jersey on right from the source. And I'm going to be on the court with these guys whose jerseys are selling in the stores and the shops. So when I go out there, I start practicing with them. And You know, the basketball at the beginning is the same because it, it was without structure. I think it was just more of a open gym type thing. Everything is, you know, it seemed the same. You know, it seems I, I feel very confident and comfortable. And uh, then you start to become aware of the little, little differences. I said this before, kind of a, as a way to parallel this is there's used to be this show in the 70s. It was called Star Trek. It was a, this odd space traveling yeah. show where the, the premise of the show was like, here's this group of humans that have their own ethos and culture and they're in discovery mode. And then in the beginning of the show, they would, they would pop up on some planet. They beam down to the planet and they would think everything was normal until these new people that they've met on the planet would do something so absurd. And then they'd all look at them. And then all of a sudden we'd go to a commercial break and, <laughs> and everybody would sit in there and, they, and that's when probably everybody's in their home going, Jesus, what were they, uh, do they have no feet? Oh my gosh. Were those new people, were they doing, was this the way they have marriages? Oh, this is like, it, that's the whole thing is they're talking about the differences. Well, when I got to the magic, I noticed right away that the team togetherness was not there. It wasn't the same. It was strangers. You know, like in, in Europe, you, you, you have to practice whatever you you go to lunch with, you know, one or two of the players or there would be something going on. Whereas with the Magic, it was kind of like, you know, you barely even said goodbye to anybody when you walked out the locker room. Everybody was, you know, doing their own thing. And, and you know, it was it was a very small little hint of it. And I was like, this is, huh, I'm kind of not getting to know any of my teammates. Okay. All right. So I just go do my thing. So they did that. Uh, so, so your coach at the time is Doc Rivers, right? Yeah. Uh, I'm amazed there that you say that because like we, I think it's well documented the difficulties within that franchise at that time. But I'm amazed that Doc being the legendary Doc Rivers wouldn't have any kind of team building exercises or anything in that direction or wouldn't be cognizant of the separation between the individuals because you know, he's, I guess we're all supposed to understand that teams have personalities and togetherness. I mean, was that rare or common or was that just an unusual set of people who just didn't get on? Well, I, I, I'd say, you know, from what you've almost answered it by saying Doc is not historically looked at as a coach who would do that. But remember, there's got to be a point where you, you transform yourself. Like, so maybe those years of the magic was when doc realized okay i'm coaching the same x's and o's i've got the same level of athleticism with my guys we're putting up the center why aren't we winning mm. you know that there's it's recorded with the celtics when he won with the big three they had some term i can't remember what it was it was like some some term that was like for everyone we do everything or something like that and 
it was interesting when I heard that. I was like, Jesus, we never had that with the magic. <laughs> yeah. So I heard these things, and and maybe that's just the growth point for Doc as the leader is figuring out, okay, I've got all these prima donnas and I got all this attitude. How do I put it all together? What I noticed was we didn't have anything and nothing was ever really spoken, you know, like, and again, it's, it's, it's different in the way that there's, there's almost this fake, I'm the greatest thing since sliced bread kind of attitude that goes around with these NBA athletes and everything is about the game. Like, I mean, personally, I don't give a shit how high you can jump, and I don't give a shit how far away you are from the basket. You put the ball into a metal cylinder. I mean, what kind of person are you? What, you know, what? How do you communicate with others? How do you take care of everybody? How do you sacrifice? These are the things that were never talked about. Like, we wouldn't really know T Mac, but everybody would just put him up to a higher level because he had 35 points one night. And mm. the next you say, you see him in the locker room, it's like, what's up, dog? What's up, man? Hey, what's up, man? Are you the man? You are? Because you just put a fucking metal, a ball into a metal cylinder. You didn't, I mean, like, who are you? I don't know anything about you. So were you having and those that, those kind of, those are existential thoughts, right? About, you know, what what is this all about? Are you having those thoughts just there at that time at Orlando or was it a case of you had seen other planets in the solar system and now Earth <laughs> seemed yeah. silly yeah. to you? It's funny because it's going back 10 minutes ago when we were talking, you were talking about something and it, without distinction, you would only think this is the way. So if you've never seen some money, some other way of doing things, how would you ever even say this is weird? It would just be this is it. Mm -hmm. So anybody else who was coming in, all these guys who were drafted and this was their first experience in the NBA, it was like, this is the way the NBA does it. Well, I was coming in going, well, this is not the way professional basketball does it mm -hmm. all over the world. This is just one brand that everybody wants to get here because it has the most fan base and it's the most, whatever, glorified basketball uh, league in the world but in its understanding of how the people are they're all going you know i don't know you like i i, I guarantee you there's so many european players that have come over and they're sitting there and they're like going this is not what i thought it was and all these phone lines are burning up and they're talking to them, hey what's it like what's it going they're like yeah i kind of miss that and i miss you know this part of our team because over here we don't do those things and that's probably where that self-reflection came into because I had a number of people as soon as I made it, they started calling me. I had guys, team, former teammates from Europe calling me, asking me about it. And I'd be like, you know, it's very strange, but there's no team meals. I don't really have an opportunity to meet any of the guys and talk to them about other things. So it's we don't hang out on the road. So it's weird. How weird must it have been to, you know, get those calls? And know in your heart that this thing that's meant to be the greatest level, the greatest achievement, the happiest, the highest high, and you're not actually that happy in it. Yeah, but I have to, again, it's, I get that, but I have to take ownership of it too. I wasn't playing to the best of my abilities. I wasn't really, I mean, I, there was a point where I lost my confidence that first year with the Magic. And that could be one of the reasons, too. And I was, you know, I, I don't want to play the victim of mm. some culture that I didn't understand. Like, it it was like this for a long time. So coming in, I just couldn't figure out a way to succeed in it. 
Yeah, I, mean, I guess that we know that the phoenix was the other side of the coin for you because you became like a a beloved member of the community there, whether it was with your uh, Pat Burke hair tonic ads <laughs> or just that people loved you as a character coming off the bench, giving energy and having the right attitude. Can you pinpoint what happened in Phoenix to make the fans take you to their heart the way they did? And what did that feel like? I don't know, but I, I think not just in Phoenix, but I think any any fan base in an organization, a club, you know, whether, whether a sport, if they, if they see somebody who's giving it their all, mm. I think that they're they're going to appreciate that. And so amazing you know, that that I, sticks I, out, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know when it started to show itself, you know, whether it was the first game or the second game, but it just kind of evolved as, you know, there was an appreciation. I think, you know, let's say after I had gotten some ending minutes at the end of a game, it was like, you know, after the game, a couple fans were there and it was like, hey, man, we really appreciate you. And I'm like, well, the game was already over. But okay. <laughs> I mean, let's not beat around the bush. A couple of those times in those closing minutes, you did some stuff that was pretty out there, right? There's the the three threes back to back against Sacramento. Did you take any heat for that? Because some people surely must have thought that game's over. Why are you still shooting threes? Yeah, there was some comments made and I didn't know it at the time. You know, it's the funny thing is, it's like, there's so many different worlds going on or different perspectives. Like I'm coming in there and I'm trying to earn minutes. So I don't give a shit if the game is over or not. I'm going to go 110 because I'm not satisfied with just the Mm. minutes at the end. So I, you know, I, I've worked all week and I've been working for months and you know, I sacrificed my summer breaks and I'm in the weight room and I'm shooting. Like, I don't give a shit if you think the game is over or not. I'm coming in here to kick your ass too. Mm. So at the end of that one, I remember Dan Tony like told me he's like, oh yeah, they were pissed off because you know Pat was hitting all those threes and really sticking <laughs> a dagger in them. And I'm like, geez, I didn't see their logo and think I got you know I got a vendetta on them. I don't give a shit whose logo was in the on the other side. I was just sitting there going, I want to play and show what I can do. I mean, there's a there's probably a few articles that get posted every year, maybe three times a year, about. Things you don't know about the NBA or uh, the biggest trash talker or the unseen side to this to this league. I feel like the fascination with it is has blown up in recent times. Maybe it's like we talked about earlier. The narratives, the storylines have been told better or sold better. But there is definitely some internal aspect to it that. I know I'm fascinated by, but I feel like the rest of the world is really interested in. What is the question that you get asked the most about this league? I think it's more of a general, like, you know, what what was that like? Like, What was it like to be in that? And I think I get a little long-winded on really outlining what the league's agenda is. You know, it's there's there's the financial gain of putting together the most entertaining product and service it can, and uh, that's where people are like, well, well, what do you mean? 
and it's almost like there's a there's a little watch on a chain that's just hypnotizing people because mm. they're just oh this is so amazing it's so this that the other and I'm like going you know when I used to do the NBA cares commercials and Steve Nash and and Brian Grant and all of us would show up at a uh, a house they were building and they'd ask us to put on a hard hat and swing a hammer. We'd sit there for three minutes, get the photos, get back in the car and drive away. And you'd sit there and you go, you'd see these commercials and they see these guys and they're, they're out there and they're, they're serving meals in the community and this and the other. And you're going, is that really what's going on? Or are they kind of just portraying an image of care? Mm. You know, the NBA without borders, you know, are these really the countries that need it? Or are these the countries that have the most populated countries where they could actually sell more product? You know, I mean, if you go to China and there's whatever millions of billions of people, if you can sell each one of them one, one hat, then that's a lot of money. Yeah. You know, like India. You know, does India really like professional basketball that much? Why is why is NBA without borders in India? I mean, that's a very populated country, and it's interesting to me to to sit back sometimes and really watch the the strategic play of the NBA. And I've been on the and I was on the conversation with the NBA front office in New York about hoops life years ago talking to them about the opportunity to change lives and to work in a way in which that would help kids to transform the way they look at things and their process and that through the sport of basketball. And after I was done with my spiel, there was about a 30-second pause of silence. And then someone on the other end goes, well, I don't understand. Who's winning in that? Jesus. Now, that's, to me is the conversation that I always get in with people when they want to talk to me about the NBA is yes, there are very athletic people playing a game and they're getting paid a lot of money, but what's really occurring inside of that, you know, are are we selling ourselves out to better basketball or is it better basketball? Because I always think to myself when I, whenever the game would be over and I'd come out in a European game, fans would come up and they'd start asking me all types of tactical questions. Oh, what was going on that timeout? Why did you guys switch to a 2-3 zone? And and in that last play there, what was the switch on this? And then I'd get out of an NBA game and someone could be like, yo, man, that dunk you had was awesome, man. Man, yeah. And I'm like, like, what what are you talking about? Yeah, and like by the sense of things, you didn't want to end your career there having seen what you'd seen you were being drawn back to europe for missing those kind of things well i would say that when i was with the magic you know the funny thing is is when i played with the magic you know i started to see the distinction and that and and i thought to myself personally i'm at a level I'm, i'm not the same athletic ability as all these guys and after a while i said you know what my best days or my most successful days or in Europe. So when I went back, you know, played with um, uh, Real Madrid and, and, and played there. And then when the phone call came back again, I was I was starting to miss the lifestyle again of being in the United States. And that's really when I went back for the two years. Now, the two years in Phoenix were fun. But again, I wasn't playing. So 
towards the end when I knew that, you know, this is kind of the last run. If I was even to make and you know, I had a tryout with the Golden State Warriors, I still would be in the same reserve position. And I wanted to play. Yeah. So that's, you know, I went back again and played and I enjoyed it. And, you know, I, I feel very fortunate and blessed to have visited all the different cultures and communities and different ways of, of achieving team. But it's, uh, it's something that you look at now and it's like, hopefully the the responses to the questions you're giving me are are, are something of going well it's i never thought about it like that well you know pat they say that like i think i've talked to over a hundred maybe 150 different athletes on the podcast over the years and it's it's always remarkable to me the different takes on the end and how I can remember Ronnie Whelan being told by Liverpool, having been promised a two year contract going into the manager and being told, I'm sorry, it's over. And he knew he was done there and then getting in his car and pulling in outside Anfield and crying his eyes out because he knew that's the end of this thing that he loved all his life. And and others, others feel a relief that it's like, oh, I can relax now. What what was that moment for you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, given everything we've uh, talked about, and funny. and and did you celebrate it? Like, or did you hold a thought in your head that maybe I can still play? Well, the second to last year, I was playing in Russia, and I thought that that team was going to bring me back, but they didn't. Him, uh, Himki, and so then the following year, I was with a Seiko Procom. And we win the Polish championship. I go home. That's the same season in which my daughter was born. So I'm kind of getting home to a summer of something different. You know, my three kids, my wife. Mm -hmm. And just you're, you're at a different phase in life. So you're, you're not, you're, you know, you don't have the pressures of, you know, I need to work on this, this, and this. Mine was just, you know, I just need to stay in shape. I understand the game. My role on a team is... Is not the big score. I just got to get my rebounds, defend the basket, you know, do a couple things here and there. So you have kind of a level of, okay, I know who I am. I know what they want. I know kind of the marketplace for, for a player like myself. That summer, towards the end of the summer, the phone call, there was no phone calls coming in. And my agent was just kind of like, oh, we're going to wait. We're going to wait. And then after a while, I was like, you know what? I think I'm done. And it was funny because without even like skipping a breath he was just like you've had a great career you know you've played 12 years and i want to say that november i think that a single program called back and they were asking did i want to come and finish the second half of the season that they needed a center and i was like no i'm, I'm good and uh i decided not to go back and I didn't miss it or anything. I just, it was funny because I kind of looked at it and go, you know what? I'm in, I'm in perfect health. I don't have any nagging injuries. You know, so many of my former teammates had problems with their knees mm -hmm. or back or neck or, or something. And I was like, you know what? I, I can still go out and play basketball if I want in the front yard. And I can still, you know, go play with the kids, you know, jump, jump around with them, this and the other. And I was kind of, looking at it like, you know what, maybe that's where I need to understand that enjoy what you did and just let it be and then look, see what's next. 
Wow. I mean, that is a big win to get out with when you consider how it how it ends for so many. Right. It can. Yeah. yeah. It ends horribly for others. And there's so many, so many cautionary tales of even like, like, like doesn't even have to be basketball, just people still chasing one more high. Yeah. But yeah. You found another form at something that you'd never even really thought about with Hoops Life by chance. Maybe you can just talk to us to finish this up. How actually you were never considered yourself a coach, but suddenly this thing came to you and kind of became, I guess, the final farewell for basketball with you. Yeah, well, just before when I when I finished playing, I took on a program that the NBA Player Association was offering up in New York. It was um, a broadcasting program, so I went up and did that. It, okay. was, it was sports for sports broadcasting, and I I put together a little uh, demo reel of things that I was doing. I had an audition with ESPN and all those wonderful things, and and then Auburn University had a position in their radio broadcasting. So I went and I did a, a, a season back with my college, and it was it was great. It was really great being around the university again, being around a high level of basketball. But the uh, the commute was about six and a half hours from the house <laughs> to the shit. university. Yeah. So I knew it was all experience-based value of, you know, okay, so you're getting your feet wet, you're understanding how to do these things, and at that time, that's right around the time that somebody, uh, a friend of mine asked me, do I ever train kids? And I thought, you know, I, I've never thought twice about anything like that. And he said, well, you know, I thought it'd be great if my two boys could learn a little bit, you know, and uh, and train with you. So I didn't understand the structure of that. I never had any personal trainers or anything. So I said, okay, well, we'll do it in my backyard. So I started working with these two young men. And the one thing I'd say the one thing that really connected me into any type of I want to do this more often was I could see and feel and experience that within them they had this hunger to learn to be better than who they were to be to be greater to do something at another level and I was like Damn, I, I remember that feeling of just you know not quite being there and wanting to be more and just and so every time we started working together it just became fun it was just you know you know high fives in the beginning talking things out talking about what we we're going to be doing and uh that's where you know i know you and i have had this conversation that's where you know over time it was kind of like people in the community started to hear that i was doing this in my backyard and you know over a bit of time i think it was about a month or two there was about 20 kids coming to the backyard that's when I, I decided, you know, I, I, I'm learning an, a new distinction of what I like to do and what I love to do. I found out that I didn't love to do radio broadcasting. I liked doing it. What I loved doing was working with these people and helping them to achieve something in their lives. And that was so rewarding in itself that that's when I pursued going into and opening up this, this new chapter in my life of, you know, I want to go start working with kids, open up a facility, create a, a space where I can do this consistently. And 
looking back now is, you know, the passion and, and the desire was there. But then again, as we talked earlier, it's, you still have to understand the research and the planning to it so that you can create it so that if that's what you want to do, you can do it for a longer period of time until, you know, you decided you wanted to, to move on. I've got two questions for you, Pat, and then we'll both head on our ways and our paths will cross at some point for a pint of Guinness, I hope. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the first one is an actual parenting coaching question, and that is, I'm sure, something that you met with uh, these youngsters that you worked with for those years. There's a kind of difficult two stools here when coaching kids. On the one hand, we want them to love it. We want to teach them to enjoy it, because if I always say it to my little boy, I say, look, if I can get you to love it, the work won't feel like work. So let's just focus on trying to enjoy it and have fun. And then on the other hand, he's getting very frustrated because he's not getting consistency in his shot. So I break it down for him. This is this is the technique. Do it this way every single time. And then eventually it just is so reliable that it's clockwork for you. But the frustration in trying to get that right removes an aspect of the fun. What do you say to somebody like myself in that situation where it feels like you can't do both? Uh, okay, you ready for this? Yeah. I posted this a little, a little while ago on my Facebook page and it says, the only true wisdom is in knowing you know nothing. From Socrates. <laughs> now stay with me on this. Mm -hmm. Whenever two people are working towards a common goal, there is an agreement of respect and an agreement of um, a starting point. And what I mean by that is this. As a father or as the leader inside of this relationship, you shared... You wanted to help him to love the game, and you, you taught him uh, a way of shooting the ball. You say, if you do this every time this way, then it'll start to create consistency, right? Mm -hmm. And in his step, he never agreed with you that that's what he wanted to do it. He didn't say he wanted to do it your way. True. Okay, so and I'm, I'm going to say this because I've been I've done the same thing before, and I want to I want to share an idea with you that we used to do inside of Hoops Life, and the thought comes from that idea of Socrates: is if I work with somebody for the first time, I don't presume to know more than they do. I create a space of knowing nothing and asking them what is it they're looking to achieve. Mm. That makes yeah, sense. It does. Okay. So what I do is I want you to imagine your child shooting a basketball and I want you to imagine a stranger coming up to him and saying, hey, oh, hey, hey, hey there, lad, your, uh, your elbow's sticking out. And then he shoots again. Oh, your elbow's sticking out again. And 10 shots. Later, oh, your elbow's sticking out again. And then he says, oh, hey, your elbow's sticking out again. And I want you to imagine that goes on for hours. What do you think your son is going to think of that stranger? Hmm. Yeah, you think he's a douche. Do you think? think he's a douche. 
okay, okay. So, so, okay. So stay with me. Stay with me because I, I've been in this position so many times. If you videotaped your son and you videotaped him to, let's say, two different angles with a GoPro or something or with your phone, and you took that and you sat down with him and you you looked at, let's say you looked at a, an agreed upon athlete. Let's say you look at Steph Curry and you said, hey, you notice the way, do you like the way he shoots? He said, yeah, I like the way he shoots. So he's your son is agreeing to form. And I don't want to say, I say this lightly, agree, agreeing to a certain perfection. That's, I like, I like the way that person should be. Oh, they're effective. They, they, they were doing something I like. And now you say, okay, let, let's watch your video. Now, when you put the video on, the only agreement you're making is you're sharing that time and space that that's the reality. You didn't create the GoPro. You didn't create mm-hmm. the, the technology in the phone. That's what's happening right now when we look. And I guarantee you, you're, your son's eyes are going to bulge out of his head and his jaw is going to drop and he's going to go, geez, dad, what am I doing? Mm. He say, well, let's work on three things. Tell me something that you're doing there that may be a little bit different or something from when you look at Steph Curry. Oh, I noticed my feet are doing this or I noticed my elbow. Now, no stranger went by and said his elbow was sticking out and you didn't say he arrived now what you have is your son agreeing to what's happening in reality because he spoke it. Man, Pat, that's some and when, that's some quality yeah. stuff. That's really great because you well, you're essentially leading the, cool, well, the breadcrumbs the cool to him. That's a. Whenever we talk about getting from one place in a trans- transformative space, from getting from A to B, there are three points inside of A to B that are very very important. You have to be able to agree upon what's happening at A. Nobody goes into a doctor's office, goes through medical exams with a world standard of testing, whether it's you know your, your glucose count, your height, your weight, anything. Nobody fights the doctor after they get the measures. <laughs> so now you've created a space where they're the doctor, they're the, they're the expert, they've just given an analysis upon themselves, so now you have A. Now what you create is what's where do we want to get to, B. And when B is spoken, well, I want to be better at this. Well, what does that mean, better at this? If your son was to shoot 100 shots every day and slowly in a measured understanding that, let's say the first day he does it, his elbow pops out 25 times out of 100. That's okay. That's where we're gauging. Now we keep going through an understanding of what are the three things we're working on, and he speaks them. I want to speak on my elbow and this, that, and the other. And over the, the, the amount of time it takes to reach that first space is, let's say, after two weeks, only five out of 100 shots, his elbow is poking out again. Well, then he's created an effective approach, which is the getting from A to B. It's that line that goes in between is where we're putting our focus on. Because when that focus starts to go there, now you're celebrating not the end result, not the ball going in the hoop, but the actual approach to getting the ball to go to the hoop later on with consistency. And that, to me, is the advice that when parents ask me things about this, there's a way to do this where you still earn the respect and and maintain the respect of the relationship. Because you're a father who loves his child and wants to see them succeed. And they just want to succeed too. And they will learn this approach through this. And they go, you know what, Dad? 
I enjoyed this because we did this together. It wasn't one person telling someone what to do. Mm, man, that, I mean, Pat, we could do a, we could do two hours on that, and I can totally see why you became so passionate about this and the, and created this thing that will be remembered forever. I know that you're in a new phase now, and you're you're back at college or taking a business course. My final question, though, is that. Uh, this life in basketball that you've lived from 97 through to 2009, if the doc arrived in the DeLorean and offered you the chance to go back and live it all again, would you? Oh, I, you know, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what I would change. I, I mean, I don't want to get too philosophical and, or, or too much into the science scientific approach of what would happen to the future if I change something. Mm. <laughs> but I'm happy. I'm blessed where I'm at today. So what, why would I change it? I mean, I went through a lot of happy moments and a lot of grief and a lot of met a lot of good people. So I, I, I appreciate where I'm at. I, I'm not I'm not standing here today wishing something had changed. So no, I, I think I'm good. Well, Pat Burke, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for doing the show. And uh, look, best of luck with whatever uh, the next chapter takes you to. I greatly appreciate it. And I look forward to our next conversation. Pat Burke, Tullamore's finest. I mean, what a way to start the series. Thank you for taking the time to download it. If you enjoyed that first conversation, rate, comment and subscribe. You know what to do. You know where to get it now. Push it out to your other Hooper friends or people that you uh, know are nostalgic for that time. If you're a fan of The Last Dance, you're not going to want to miss our next episode with Roland Lazenby, the author of the definitive Jordan biography, Michael Jordan, The Life. That book is unbelievable. I recommend you get it, even if you just want to know a little more behind the icon that is Michael Jordan. He also wrote an incredible Kobe biography called Showboat. That's a joy to read. And the absolute companion piece to The Last Dance, Blood on the Horns, where he travelled with the team and was inside the doors of that final season that The Last Dance covers. Roland Lazenby is my guest on the next episode of Irishman Abroad Inside Basketball. If you'd like to get advanced access to upcoming episodes and access to the full back catalogue of Irishman Abroad Podcast Network episodes, there's only one place to get them. Go to patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad and sign up for premium today. You'll get everything. Hundreds of episodes and conversations that I've had since 2013 unavailable anywhere else. We don't have a sponsor on this show, but what we do have is your patronage. So if you'd like this to continue and the podcast to continue and you'd like that bonus content, head over there and sign up. We do have a chosen charity partner, though, and we use this platform to raise awareness of one charity, and that charity this year is Jigsaw.ie. Jigsaw are an incredible organization that have been helping with youth mental health back in Ireland. Across all communities, Jigsaw.ie has traveled into those communities and set up seminars, classes, and one-to-ones to help young people with the challenges of being young and growing up, the anxiety, the mental health skills that they'll need to make it in life, they try and equip them with. And unfortunately, as a result of lockdown, 
those one-to-ones can't happen. So a lot of these young people are missing the desperately needed help that they were relying upon from Jigsaw. So they've moved everything that they do online to their jigsawonline.ie website. And that site, if you are a young person listening to this and you're struggling with the anxiety and the stresses that come with going through such a crazy period in global history, have a look, jigsawonline.ie. Maybe you've got a young person in your life who could do with a little bit of guidance and you don't know how to start. Well, I've gone over there myself and I can tell you, even when my youngster is only nine, it was a help to me and just figuring out what they're dealing with, what they're going through and how to address it without being confrontational. They need your help, though. They do need your help. They can't continue to provide the services they do, the web seminars and the staff that are trained and um, really, really experienced at dealing with these situations that they confront. They need your help. Jigsaw.ie forward slash now. If you can afford to kick in a tenor over there, it would mean everything. I don't ask for anything for this podcast, but I would ask if you had the money to go and do that. Uh, That money will go a huge distance to helping them. But finally, let me just say this is a real uh, buzz to have this up and running, this passion that I've had all my life. And now to have an opportunity to speak to the people who lived it at the highest levels. I'm just so delighted that you've taken the time to download it. I'm so happy that we're finally doing this. Uh, So come with me on the journey inside basketball. Thanks to Brian Connolly for his production, to Pat Burke for taking the time to do this, and Tina and Mikey for making it all possible. And I will see you next time, or talk to you next time, for the Roland Lazenby episode of An Irishman Abroad Inside Basketball.